Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me, Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world, it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of the musicians is lost and restricted. Having both dealt in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle and hope to do so with some fantastic guests along the way. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. much for agreeing to talk to me about a subject that is you know pretty important and I think quite relevant to talk about these things particularly for somebody that's so influential and uh, successful as you are so thank you and there, there are quite a few I mean there are you know people who, who have had successful playing careers and um, maybe for one reason or another had to change track you know so to start off, because I mean, I'm not completely clear, but I'm sure that some of our listeners also won't be completely clear. Could you just give a layman's summary of what uh, focal dystonia is? Well, I'm not, I'm not a medical expert and I, I don't want to be sort of quoted as being one. But in my sort of understanding of it, it's, it's a neurological condition. Um, where signals from the brain for fine muscle control get confused and that can result in loss, loss of muscular control, possibly even spasms. And, and, and so in my case, probably unwanted tension in the muscles that um, I, di- I didn't, wasn't asking for, you know. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's just my interpretation of it. And so can you give a sort of summary of your, you know, your musical story up until, well, not necessarily up until, but give me a background of your musical history and whereabouts did the focal dystonia hit, as it were? Well, very, very briefly. I mean, I studied at the academy where where you were, um, and that was sort of mid-70s. And I got a job very early on in the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra um, when I was 20. Um, I just auditioned and I, I, I was so green, I, I, I wasn't really aware what the standard was really. And I, I didn't really know the orchestral repertoire very well, but I suppose they saw some kind of potential in me. And so I was lucky enough to get the job. Um, then after three years, I went to the Scottish National Orchestra for eight and a half years, I think. And then um, I came down to the Philharmonia Orchestra in 1989. Um, That was to replace Ray Premru, who's a very well-known musician, not just a bass trombone player. And then I spent five years there. And then I went to the LSO. I I, um, followed Frank Matheson in the LSO. That was in 1994. And I was there for about 10 years. Um, and it, it was about 2002 or 2003, it's a while ago now, I mean, it's nearly 20 years ago, um, so my memory's 
not quite as clear as it was, but um, I, I st- that's when I started experiencing difficulties. And um, very often with this dystonia, there's a trigger which kind of unbalances something that's been um, you, you've been doing for maybe years and years without any problems, uh, and then suddenly, uh, and in my, my case, I think I tried I tried a new trombone, and after a few months, I decided no. Um, this isn't quite as good as my old trombone, and I went back to my old trombone, and and I found a few notes not responding quite as I as I wanted, um, and I, th- I didn't think I thought well it'll be all right a bit of practice and it'll come back, but it it didn't it seemed to go in the other direction it seemed to, instead of getting better it seemed to start spiraling down. And I think that's a very that was probably a very crucial time because nobody. I mean, I I asked my colleagues in the LSO. I said, oh, I'm not very happy with how things are going, and they said, Oh, it's fine. It sounds it sounds great, Bob. You know, it just sounds like normal. I thought, well, but I didn't feel like normal, you know. <laughs> so um, and then so it, and it started in the in the lower register. Just one, or, just one or two notes that just felt a little bit kind of dull and uncensored. And I suppose what I started doing was perhaps making minute changes to the embouchure, which to try and compensate for that. And that's when things started getting out of kilter. And that those one or two notes started spreading. Then before I knew, I was then having problems perhaps in in a, in a half octave in the low register, and then it, it spread. Um, and then I just, being the sort of person I am, you know, perhaps a bit of a perfectionist and, and someone who works hard, I I, I pra- try to practice more, thinking right, I've got I've got to work my way out of this. Um, perhaps in retrospect, if I'd said, oh, ah, forget it, I'll just I'll just have six months off and not touch the trombone. Um, who knows? It might have. But I'll never know that now. And and anyway, in the early days, it was too much to kind of ask for six months off the LSO. You know, they were, I still needed to earn money and um, and keep doing the job. You know, so I battled on, for maybe for about eighteen months, two years, um, and then it got really bad. And and people, I think, started to notice that. And so I thought, right, this is now I need to take some time off. So that that summarizes the kind of the the beginning of it all, really. Yeah, wow. I mean, that sounds because in my mind, it was something that was a sudden thing or something that would take place just over a short period of time. But it sounds like quite a long, traumatic period of time. And because, yeah, as much as you waited until other people started noticing, perhaps to take time off, like there there was that whole span of time where you knew something was wrong um, and were desperately trying to figure something out, which is I can't even imagine how stressful that would have been. And yeah, not and not being able to take time off as well. That's I just I don't know how how on earth you would have coped with that. Well, I think if if it, on the bass trombone, it, it, it's, you're a little bit kind of tucked away, a little bit uh, with exceptions. Um, you know, if you if I'd been on first trumpet or first horn, it would have become more apparent sooner. But but it, it felt like. Playing it always, I wouldn't say come easily to me, but I, I suppose I was a fairly natural player. But I did practice. I mean, if I had a day off, I would do an hour, at least an hour's practice or something. And I, and I enjoyed practicing. Um, but it, 
from one one I thought was I mean I I, I was I think I, I don't know. I was playing well, you know, I was in the LSO do, doing the job, um, surrounded by fantastic colleagues and players. And, and it was, it was, life was, I couldn't have been happier, you know. Um, and then this, and it, it, it started to feel like the muscular memory had kind of gone somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, when you, you form an embouchure and you, you just, there's a kind of feel there, you know what it is. That That's what started to become very muddied. And, um, you know, notes went, where I thought they were. Have you played at all since you put the trombone down for that time off? Did you come back to it? Well, that's when, um, when I took that time off, this was, we're talking about 2000, maybe through 2003, 2004 by then. Um, I didn't know what it was and it was, it was just so frustrating. Um, and I went to see some medical experts, and um, oh, I, I had I did hypnotherapy, um, um, some electrolysis kind of stimulation for the lips. I mean, it, 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 sometimes it just felt like the lips weren't vibrating freely. You know, they were like the, the muscles had got rigid or something like that. You know, and then my wife spotted something on online, and it was focal dystonia, and this. Uh, embouchure dystonia and she said i think you might have something like this so that's when um i mean i I went to see lots of top players um well at least half a dozen if not more and they suggested different things but nobody came up i mean these are the top brass players in certainly in the uk um some outside the uk um, they they didn't mention dystonia. They said, "Oh, you you know, try and do more buzzing on the mouthpiece, or do this and that, do that." And none of it was working. Um, but Dennis Wick, um, he was very supportive actually, and he he was interested in the whole subject of this, especially when we thought it could be this dystonia. And he knew a lady in Texas called Jan Kagarice, um who um, had a. a very deep understanding of dystonia. So I went over to Texas about four times, maybe four or five times. Um, and she she actually came over to the UK a couple of times. And we were working together. And um, I mean, they were, I, there was some progress there. I mean, it was basically uh, changing the way, playing, relearning how to play in a way with a different mental focus. So basically, you, you're you're relearning how to play, which which is very difficult because you you know how to play, and it's you can't unlearn how you play, you know. Yeah. But somehow it was a case of almost forgetting everything you'd done and start afresh, you know. Um, I imagine it's like I I tried to learn the clarinet during lockdown, and it was really exciting because it was something new and the progress. Uh, curve was quite steep and because I had all the musical knowledge and it was a little bit frustrating that I couldn't play um, what I wanted to on this new instrument but I imagine it was a hundred times more frustrating because you've already been up to the top level on that instrument yeah um, and you you know how you used to sound and you have evidence you know recordings and whatever 
Um, yes. so I can only that must have been incredibly frustrating. Yeah, we developed it between myself and this lady Jen Kagarais. We, we developed a sort of strategy, and I mean, I had to think be positively. I had to think positively. I think yes, I'm going to overcome this. Mm-hmm. But I, I found um, I, I had some sort of exercises I would do, and I would kind of get things going. Um, just very simple sort of glissando slur exercises and thing I could sort of start building her thing up again um, and then possibly the telephone might go and I'd have a five minute conversation with someone and I'd go back to the trombone and it had all gone again so it was like it, it was like you know when you write your name in in the sand and and a wave comes in and just it's gone it was it was like that what was the longest time you could play for at that point? Was there like a, a, I mean, in terms of stamina on a brass instrument, you know, you can't play for that long anyway. Was it that um, when you were relearning stuff, was there a point at which it would stop as well? And then you'd, you'd have to stop playing and then go back? I don't think stamina, stamina wasn't an issue. That's so weird. It, I could play not bad in the high extreme, in the upper register. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is in, and what's interesting, what, what I've learned with people with dystonia, it af- seems to affect the areas that you, your bread and butter areas or the areas that you focus on. So in my case, on the bass trombone, it was the bass trombone register that was affected. I mean, there are pianists and guitar players, violinists can get it in their fingers mm-hmm. where their fingers, it might be just one finger, doesn't quite do what you're telling it to do. And and it, for instance, guitar players, is it can be very often in their right hand because that's what a lot of the focus is on, mm. you know. Um, maybe with, with fiddle, well, fiddle players, it's it's more likely because it would be in their left hand because that, that's where they, they're fingering, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it's the most frustrating thing because it can be very. It could be one finger, or in in my case, it was a, just a certain part of the register, mm. you know. And of course, when you when when you teach a healthy brass player, as you know, if they can get um, you know, a few notes quite nicely, you you can give them exercises and encourage them and, and give them tunes to play, and they, they can gradually build the register but this was this was very different it, there was something unhealthy going on you know yeah usually you build from a, a, a foundation upwards and outwards yeah and it's like you've got the outward stuff but not the foundations yeah yeah it sounds really bizarre um and at the time you know you said you went to like these electro I don't know, hypnotherapy, all these people how how did you know where to go and did you find that you knew where to go like did you have help finding where to go um a little a little bit but it it was a bit like um finding a needle in a haystack i mean a lot of it was just trial and error other musicians would say have you tried this have you, you know um um so no it was all it was all very much trial and error i i, I went to I did go to, I was judging a competition in Hanover and there's a very fine trombone player there who, again, I think has got a very un- understanding of these things. Um, he, and we, I had a few sessions with him 
and I think he thought I we we can get things going, you know. And I think he, I think he was a bit surprised why it, it didn't seem to uh, come together. But while I was in Han- Hanover, there's a very there's a well known neurologist there, who's I think was a, a flute player, um, and his name is Alton Muller. So I, I I went to see him, and he said, "Yeah, come." He was very kind. I saw him early in the morning, and he said, "Bring your trombone," and and I tried to play a few notes to him. And, you know, my face was kind of all all over the place. A lot of, um, there'd be muscular spasms coming in. So I, I might have funny little pulls to one side that was involuntary movements. Um, anyway, he saw me playing and very quickly he, he said, yeah, you, you've got focal dystonia and you've got it fairly, pretty severe. Um, he, he said, um, he said if, I think if you keep trying to get your playing back, um, it's unlikely to come. He, he said uh, his advice was to take some time off and then maybe, maybe, it, the, it, you know, after a period of time, it, you might find things start to work again. And, and, and that, I always remember that day, at, you know, after tr- trying for about two years to try and overcome this thing, which was very frustrating and an emotional time, really, um, that... I th- I, this wave of relief came over me that I thought oh, that I have got a condition, um, and it, it, I remember. Just, and it was from that day I kind of thought, you know, I'm just going to leave it alone now. Um, mm. And I'd like to say that I mean the LSO were fantastic. They or, uh, not only the my colleagues but the the the, um, the management. They said, look, take time off, uh, whatever we can do. Um, there was a there was some a little bit of financial support in kind of an in house insurance scheme, mm. so um, so that that helped. But then after you know after a couple of years, you know you start asking yourself, well, come on, that, is it going to come back? You know, it, it was never near. What would have been frustrating if I got it ninety percent back, and and there were just one or two notes that weren't quite right. In my case, it was the other way around. It was like eighty percent. Mm. You know, I couldn't have gone back to the LSO. Yeah. It would have been like playing for Manchester United with a broken ankle or something. You, know, you, just, you just couldn't have done it. Yeah. So um, it was an, in a way it was a no-brainer. In the end, I thought, you know, I've got to, I've got to resign here. And, um, and it was all – was, everything was fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, very, you know, very disappointed. But I, I thought, no, this isn't going to work. And, yeah, I suppose um, going back to – you know, you said you felt that sense of relief when you sort of had a, a name to give it. I suppose that's yeah. kind of the same as like medical, con- any medical condition. It does help that. Yeah, and it helps you sort of maybe connect with other people that have the same thing, or at least you know what to research rather than, as you say, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Did they say, because they, you know, this neurologist said that it was, you were quite far along the along the progress of focal dystonia. Is it a certain thing where the more you try and get it back, the worse it gets. I think keeping trying to practice, um, probably you, trying to you reuse the old neural pathways, so trying to play as you had, had always played, that it, it's a no, you just can't do it. It won't come back. You've got to find a new way. And someone was telling me the other day they know of a bass guitar player who, who play a really top bass guitar player who plays in surgical gloves. And, and, and yeah. I think with his left hand. And 
apparently without the gloves on, he, he has real problems. His fingers won't do what he's telling them to do. But he wears these surgical gloves and it's a different sensory feeling. And he can, he can play, you know, th thankfully. It's really weird. I mean, one neurolo neurolo neurologist sorry, I saw in London, um, her name was Karen Rosencrantz. And she, she, I mean, she was a great support. And she tried to, she thought, well, why don't you try perhaps playing on a plastic mouthpiece? or even put something over the rim of the mouthpiece, like cork or something, to which you, then the, the brain's going to, you're going to, you're trying to trick the brain. that you, No, you're not playing the trombone, you know. Mm. I mean, there are crazy stories. I, I mean, I don't know if it's actually true or not, but pianists who have problems, they, they can play on plastic keys, but give them ivory keys and they, they have a funny reaction. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's not much you can do with your mouth necessarily. That that's the problem. I mean, I, I know a woodwind players who've had it in, in. There was a I know a very good flute player who's in a principal job. Um, she had it in I don't know a little finger or something, or maybe that that finger, um, and she adapted her flute so that the she didn't need to use that finger and had some clever way of designing the keys, and she she was able to continue playing professionally. But it, it's just finding a way around it. And as you say, with an embouchure, there's only really one place you can put your the, the mouthpiece, you know. Yeah, and maybe if it was trumpet, like it would maybe be your fingers, but a trombone, it, you haven't even got a different avenue for the dystonia to go down, really. So Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's... yeah. But I'll tell you an interesting thing. Is when, when I was in Hanover, there was um, Radovan Vlakovic, the horn player, was there. And he, he he's such a great guy, you know, and... Um, a tremendous uh, musician and very intelligent guy. He said, he said, come, come around to my room, my hotel room, he said, and, and I'm, I'm really interested in this. So I, I tried playing, and he, he, he could see something wasn't working, you know. And so he said, oh, try my horn. So I, I picked up his horn. This was before COVID, by the way, <laughs> so, so, um, <laughs> when you could share instruments a bit easier. Um, and I managed to play a, a scale of C on the horn. And he said, that's, that's really interesting. So I thought, oh, um, and I did try a horn for a while, but then it seemed to go haywire after a couple of months. But then I, I because I needed to, to earn a bit of money, I took on a job one day a week teaching in a prep school, teaching little kids, which I'd never done before. And I, I picked up a trumpet one day, and again, I, I, play, I played a scale of C, Pretty, pretty badly, but I could do it. You know? And I thought, that's quite interesting. And I wasn't getting the kind of reaction on the face, like the, the, the muscular pulls. Mm -hmm. So um, I still play the trumpet. And um, I play fourth trumpet in a big band, in a kind of well, amateur, semi-pro type big band. Um, I've got a gig tonight, actually. But I'm, I'm not good, I'm not, but I can, I can play fourth trumpet in a big band. But that's, that's fun. Like it, I guess it kind of satisfies some sort of musical outlet yeah. that you haven't been able to have. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I was I, I try and do a little bit of practice most days. I I, I, try, I try not to get too serious about it because I think you know there's there's no way I'm going to be a, a a good trumpet player. But I think well, if I can get a bit of enjoyment out of it, and mm. I, I also find it quite interesting that that the trumpet works a bit. But it, but it's the same thing when when I pick first pick 
well, if I'm buzz, try and buzz a few notes at first thing, which should be just a natural sort of... It, it's, it's rather confused, but I've got a few ways mm-hmm. of getting around it a bit. And eventually I'll get a few, it's a buzz going and then I'll build it up and then a few scales and, you know. So, um, yeah, I got the Herbert Clark out and the kind of, um, do some of those. Um, I mean, I, what, I, what I struggle with on the trumpet is in, endurance and high register, like every other trumpet bit, player. Yeah. <laughs> so you're part, one of us now. I'm a lot lower down than you are, Becky. That's so <laughs> a, lot, a lot lower down. I suppose, as you were saying, your high register wasn't a problem on the bass trombone when it hit. So I guess that's sort of nearer the trumpet range that you're comfortable in now. So. Yeah, well... So I'm probably playing in the high register of the bass trombone, you know. That's so funny. But what is interesting that it's like you you're using slightly different neural pathways. Mm. You know, playing the trumpet. I mean, there's the obvious ones. There's vowels, not a slide. But the, the mouthpiece, of course, is much smaller. Um, I guess just the sound and like there are just enough things different. Maybe yeah, maybe the horn would have been too close to the trombone. I don't know. Maybe that's why yeah. trumpet works better. Because the the, trum- the horn's got that kind of mellow, mellowish tone that the bass trombone's got. And I think my sound has got better on the trumpet. I mean, someone told me years ago, that, oh, you sound like a trombone player trying to play the trumpet. But actually, I, um, I think my sound's got better. I've got to go and play to Mark soon and see what he says. You know, But, uh, but I'm embarrassed because it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool that you're persevering with it and still finding like a regular place to perform and I, I, I yeah totally respect that yeah as you were saying about um you got this teaching job teaching primary people mm. you're you know pretty internationally acclaimed teacher I would say and um I it always interests me this idea that you know you've coached lots and lots of some of the world's best bass trombonists and do you I mean it's probably a no-brainer but do you find that your experience of the dystonia has affected the way that you teach do you think you would be as good a teacher if you hadn't have had it well that's that's another interesting story because when I was playing with the LSO and Philharmonia and all that, my method of teaching was I play I played a lot in lessons, so it was a bit like uh, oh do it like this and I I'll play and and I I suppose I I didn't understand so much about brass playing then because mm. it kind of worked you didn't have to like Morris Murphy if you ask Morris how do you do that well, he's like, I don't know. Don't, don't ask me. He didn't, Morris didn't want to know. Yeah. He, he actually stopped. He didn't do any teaching in London because he, he didn't want to think about it. Um, and I can, you, got, you can respect that, you know, but he, he was such a natural player. He didn't want to know what the tongue was doing or the embouchure, you know. And, and I, well, I, I had a sort of summer element of that, but I think I've got a far greater understanding now Um of that and of course I've never taught talking about little prep school I've never taught at that level mm. and um Andy Forbert who's was a, a t- trombone player euphonium player great great guy you know he he was moving down to Somerset with his with his wife she had a job down there and he said do you want this take this day on in it was Gerald's Cross and so I, I had to learn how to teach little kids you know, even I didn't even know what kind of method books, you know, I knew tune a day, but, but there are, there are loads of other little fun things to, you know, so that was a, a learning curve. 
you know, I never started someone off on, on a trumpet or a tenor horn or anything like that. Was it whole class or one-to-one? Well, it was thankfully one-to-one. Well, occasionally I'd get, say, maybe half a dozen of them in, you know, to try try this out, try that. But it wasn't any of this kind of, um, what do they call it, when you get 30 in a class? Like first access? No, I didn't do that. I don't know how people do that. So at what point did you progress on to teaching sort of music college standard people? Um, well, I'd always taught, but I mean, even back in Scotland, I taught at the Academy in Scotland, mm-hmm. or now the conservatoire up there. Um, so, um, but it was, again, it was very, um, I mean, I started teaching when I was 21, 22. Um, I mean, the students were only three years younger than me, sort of thing. But it was very much like, oh, do it like this. And I, I play a lot, you know. But And then I, when I came to London, I, I, Harold Nash, who was the old trombone professor there, he got me in. Uh, they because they didn't have a bass trombone professor before me, mm. um, so I, I started teaching about 1989 um, at the academy, uh, and I'd always done you know three or four hours a week, you know in between rehearsals and concerts that kind of thing, um, and then when when I stopped playing, Jimmy Watson was still the head of brass at the academy, and he was ve- very supportive. He sort of um gave me a bit more not only one-to-one teaching but perhaps group work brass ensembles and things like that so he he was really great and I, I think Jimmy Jimmy had gone through difficult patches I think so he he was quite sympathetic to you know it's it's not all plain sailing uh playing a brass instrument sometimes you know absolutely I'm not I don't want to freak anyone out here but <laughs> no not at all I think um yeah it can be interesting teaching people I mean I always find that it provides a sort of mirror on my own playing or sort of encourages me to think deeper or better about my own playing and I I wonder how did it feel when were you teaching when you were going through the dystonia period yes did you find that your relationship with your students changed or did you find that you were thinking about the lessons differently at the time That's a really good question. I can't remember. That's <laughs> all right. I just sort of struggled through, I think. But I, I must have been a bit distracted. Um, and I'd be a bit yeah. more careful as to what which bits I'd demonstrate. So probably during that time, the amount of time I actually played in lessons got less, probably. Um, and and you, how do I put things into words? Um, I, I, I find I need a piano in, the, in, a, in a teaching room just to, to mm. sometimes play pitches and, and singing. You know, because it's—I it, mean—so much of it is related to singing. Not, not that I'm good, a good singer, but uh, you know, it's the the breath and phrasing and and all. That. You know, the whole r- relaxation. You know, but I mean, the the great thing about teaching at the academy is, and, and Mark, I think it does a fantastic job as head of brass. And and the, the guys we've got in, like I was saying, it's the second week of term. We've got Jürgen van Ryan in and your own Bervart. Next week, Rex Martin's coming in. I think in three weeks, Ian Bounsfield's coming in. Um, then I think your own is back in. To, he's doing a concert. I think they're doing a brass arrangement of excerpts from Rosencavalier, I think. Um, so what I try and do... and. It, I try and get in and listen to these guys to their master classes, and it, it's fantastic. What, what, that I've learned such a lot because I've now got more time to go. You know, when you're with the LSO, you just you don't have time. Um, 
you know, you, you do your three hours and then you go back to the Barbican for, for the concert and all that. But to be able to, I mean, I went in and I caught a bit of Jürgen's class yesterday and he's fantastic. You know, he, he talks about, it was not only the, the, the technical side of it, the relaxation, the musical side of it. Um, he, he, he's amazing. I, I mean, I, you learn such a lot just from listening to these guys. Yeah, and it, it really influences your own teaching for sure. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And how, I mean, it's probably quite a difficult question. And, you know, I'm totally understand if you don't want to answer it. But, if you know, how does it feel teaching people that you see to go on to such great heights? And it's not that you didn't have that, but is there any element of um, sadness or nostalgia for when you were able to play in the LSO or any other job that you had, is there some sort of uh, difficulty mentally when you see people, your own students going on to do such great things? No, not now at all. I think early on, I, I, it was strange. Um, little things, I mean, I, if I heard bits of Richard Strauss, you know, some of those big climaxes, I just, I'd get a bit emotional listening, thinking, oh, God, I'm never going to sit in the LSO doing that again you know and I mean or if I, if, sometimes I went to the cinema because my my kids were at the age where they go and see Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all that all those things and I, I I used to that was a bit emotional because we used to do those soundtracks with the LSO and I I was on quite a few of them you know um so that was yeah that was hard early on but now I've moved on I, I mean I don't look I don't look back at all now and, and some, I've, I've been so lucky at the academy with the the students. I, I've, I've had some tremendous. I don't really want to name anybody because I, I I might miss someone out. Um, so, but I've just been lucky, and and they've gone on to several. Well, there's a lot of got jobs, and even the the ones aren't jobs. They they're pretty successful and they're they're pretty busy, you know. Um, so and I, that that's where I get my pleasure from right now. See, seeing these guys. You know, it's kind of flying, you know. I guess that it's just so satisfying as a teacher. And and maybe it's almost easier not being a performer in the same way. Because I think when you're a performer and a teacher, and maybe I, I don't teach at music college, but I imagine that sometimes there's that, maybe when you're still fresh as a music college teacher, there can be that crossover between being uh, in the same, I guess, industry as the people that you're teaching. But yeah. perhaps it's easier because, you know, you're completely removed and your whole passion is just teaching. Yeah. I mean, in the old days, some of the old guys, they, they used to be saying, to, don't teach them too much, they'll be stealing your work. <laughs> and So, you, you know, you, they, you, they, they aren't, wouldn't tell you the, the, some of the secrets. Or they, there was that kind of, they were protective. Yeah. Um, this, they didn't want the students coming in and stealing the work, you know. I mean, it's hilarious and awful. <laughs> it's, it's, it is hilarious and awful, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that happens now. I think people are much more generous and they just want to give, share their knowledge. I mean, the, the only thing I, I do question sometimes in my mind is that teaching all, all these great players coming to the academy and their their career prospects you know um that that's what, hard to see yeah but i i was saying it the other day you know if you're dedicated enough i always think there's room at, for the it, it, you know, like a pint of milk there's the cream at the top and there's always a room for that cream and and if you can if you work hard enough and 
you know, well, it's mainly hard work, but talent as well. Um, I think you you will you'll do okay. There's always room for something new, and as much as it is hard to find something original, I think it's easier to find a career that takes into account lots of different strands of a person and their playing. Mm. Uh, nowadays, I think as much as it's a cliche that you have to make your own work. Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, in the old, you know, when I, I, I got a job, and I, I was. I was not always I was always proud to be in an orchestra. You know, I, I felt honoured that I, you know, I got the job in an orchestra, and I was very happy sitting there doing the job um, and trying to play as best I could. And, and I was very lucky because I had I always had nice colleagues around me, so I was never. Um, I think I can I do remember back in like I don't know the late seventies or something like that. Someone said, "Oh, Bob, wait, you're still young. Why don't you do a bass trombone recital?" in a church or something. And I, and I thought, who wants to, who wants to hear a bass drum? You know, and, and, it, and it was a bit like that. I think a lot of the, a lot of the people in jobs thought, ah, oh, who wants to hear a blinking trombone concerto, you know. Mm. And that has changed now. I think a lot of young players are, as you say, creating their own work and uh, doing little recitals and, of course, putting things on YouTube. Um, partly because they have to, but I think they're being a, a lot. They're thinking much wider and not not being so narrow in their mu- musicality. So uh, that's only a healthy thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think probably, I mean, they've always there always has been great players, but I think there are more good players around now. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that I, do, I it feels like the culture of only wanting to listen to violin and piano concertos that we recognize that that is the sort of culture that is only going to lead to the downfall of classical music. So actually we need to do all the other things in order to keep it going and to revitalize it. Um, Which it, you know, it's, it's, we always say that there aren't enough jobs for all the amazing players coming out, which, you know, it's just true. But I think we, for the future, we're doing the right thing of cultivating this more open-mindedness and uh, a wider platform for everybody, which is promising, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I, again, I remember being in, say, the Scottish National Orchestra, and we, we'd have to, you know, every month, we might have to go and do a day in the schools. And I, I sort of hated it. You know, I hated going to someone like Govan, some really rough parts of Glasgow. And I, when I think back now... That that was a really narrow, negative attitude, and and I, I think people now every orchestra's got its own education department, and um, people and some people really get into it. You know, mm. a lot of players go to you spend a couple of days in schools, you know, regularly, and they love it. And I, I think that that's great because I think that's the, as you, we're talking about the classical music surviving. It's it's got to be survive at grassroots, isn't it? You know enthusing young young kids otherwise we're we're dead in the water I think yeah I completely agree just because I wanted to ask you about your the the dystonia and there was one other question I had about a sort of more emotional side of that before I forget um and again feel free not to answer anything that you don't want to but when you were seeking all this um physical support for the dystonia did you ever seek any I guess it wasn't such a thing perhaps back then but did you ever seek any mental support 
and how was your you said you were quite frustrated but how was your mental state during that pretty awful time yeah I was anxious and depressed but not not severely so I mean I I must say I'm I'm very lucky having a a sort of uh, loving family life you know, I've got my wife Jill. She was a real support to me, and and she's successful in her in her old own field, um, and she is very resourceful. So, so I didn't. Um, I needed to earn money, yes, but I, I, we weren't starving, you know. So that that was a big pressure. That I, I that was one thing, and and she filled that role. You know, she she made sure that I didn't have to worry about getting bread on the table. You know, because uh, that then that gets really hard, and and I couldn't have gone on for two years trying my best. I'd have probably had to say no. And um, actually, HGV driver would that would have been the thing to do. It'd be I'd be yeah, foresight. <laughs> loads of work now driving petrol tankers about. Um, um, no, I, I'd have had to cut loose and get a proper job. <laughs> you know, um, so having that that family life and and my kids were fantastic as well um i think i mean uh, i don't know what age they were probably about 10 or 12 when all this was happening they probably didn't pay much attention so so that side of it i i had a kind of um um a solid family supported background so that that really helped i mean, I mean if you don't have that then it, it gets really really hard you know um yeah, but mentally, yes, I, I didn't fall to pieces at all. I, I was, I was kind of very focused that I wanted to do that. Mm. In fact, we moved house a couple of years ago, and I, I found that tougher mentally actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just all the worries about moving house. I, I, that that was far harder mentally for me. But um, no, it was. Um, yeah, I, it was the it was the worry going into say a, an LSO rehearsal, thinking, oh, God. you know, I'd, playing I say a Vorjat symphony, I wouldn't even have thought about it. You know, it's just yeah, I'd have just enjoyed it and played well and all. And then there were certain notes I was worrying about, you know. And uh, mm. it's amazing that you managed to just keep focused and not not fall to pieces, as you say. I, you know, I feel like a lot of musicians struggle to separate their their feeling of worth as a person from their playing and, and their instrument. Um, did you ever struggle with that? I mean, it sounds like you kind of just were pretty good at being able to separate them and just keep focused. But were, were there any points where you felt like your yeah worth as a person was entwined with your difficulties on the trombone? Well, yeah, yeah that that is one thing. You know, when you, you're if you you're in the LSO or um, especially the other, I mean, the LSOs are just a great job and well, Philharmonia, Scottish National, whatever, you know, or to have any job. I, I, and I was always very proud of it. And I, and I did the job. I mean, I was there 90, 98% of the time. Well, these days, I think a lot of people always tend to trying to take time off to do other stuff, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I was proud of being bass trombone in in the LSO, and, and there was like I had a badge, you know, sort of, you know, and that that was hard. I think you, when I when I was no longer there, I wasn't. So the that little bit of identity, but you know, 
you, you are who you are. I think it's, it's better. The, it's the person you are, not not where you, what your job is really. Um, yeah. You know, and, and again, um, having the, the academy has been a great because I've kind of put my energies more into that now. Mm. Um, so I've got a, a real focus for for the teaching and 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 I see I see all the brass and some of the woodwind as well yeah. now, which is which is really nice. I mean, to do the chamber music coaching, um, that's fantastic. Orchestral rep classes, and I didn't have to really have the time before to do that. I wonder whether. Um, teaching, well, financial issues aside, if you hadn't have had the teaching, do you think you would have found it as easy to move on from the dystonia mentally? Um, I feel I'm a musician, and I, I, mm. I've been lucky to have a whole life in music, you know, and um, I, I still love music. I still listen to music at home, and and I, I love music, so. I, I don't know if I could have changed track and become a, I don't know, an engineer or a, you know, or, I mean, I suppose I could have done it. It, it might have been, it might have been good for me. I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just thankful that I've, I've still managed to have a, a career in music. You know, in many ways, it's more rewarding than playing in a way. And if any of your students were having issues that you thought were potentially injury related, what would your advice be to them? Well, I think general uh, overall health and well-being is is very important. You know, keeping fit, not abusing. You know, not not doing things too much in excess. It's hard for brass players, isn't it? But uh, yeah, <laughs> but, um, I, it's just living, being healthy is very important. I think, and having a balanced life. Also, I mean, I, I, again, practicing, spending six hours in a practice room is not really healthy, I don't think. You know, I, I often think, you know, probably two hours or maybe three hours really constructive practice a day is more than enough when you think you're, what you're doing to your face. Maybe if I'd turn, I, I might not have practiced so much myself, actually. I think you, people need to be much more intelligent about how they practice. Um, I mean, you know all about, all about this, but it... I think so many brass players, they, they get the instruments out and they doodle away for hours a day because they enjoy it. There's so much that can be learnt from outside of the instrument. Yes. That affects you as a person and a player. So you may as well go out and find those things as well as just spending the time on the facial muscles. I mean, there, there's the musical side of things. I mean, I think you people should spend... I wish I'd done much more of it. Spend more time reading scores and, and listening. Mm. Again, it takes time, but I, I think that's really valuable. Do do half an hour's less practice and read scores for half an hour and listen to recordings and things. Try to go to concerts, obviously, and not and, and not just things with brass in. You know, go, go to the Wigmore Hall and hear a string quartet. Um, go go to a pub and hear a folk band. You know. Oh, you just go and hear all sorts of music because you, you, you absorb it and you learn from it, you know. And then, of course, there's you should go to the theatre. You should you know, great, see great actors, go to the cinema, see good films and art galleries. You, know, you should do all these things because it, it makes you much broader as a person um, and you'll be a better musician because of that. Yeah, and healthier physically and mentally, I, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. For sure. 
And and I think you do. I think we as brass players, we you you do need some kind of exercise. Like I've seen you. you I know you used to run around Regent's Park, but I think I, I used to run a lot. My, um, I I can't. My knees aren't so good now. But uh, I mean, I think. But even just brisk walking is good, and swimming. Um, quite a few players go to the gym. Um, whether that's Again, I don't think you should do that to extreme. So you know, you don't want massive muscles and all that. I, I, I do wonder if that, if, if you're too tight in, in your, your abdomen, that that's not great for brass playing. You, you need to have that a bit of um, freedom and um, elasticity there. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. And yeah, I know that so many people will be incredibly. Uh, it will warm everybody's hearts to hear you talking so openly about uh, your life and your struggles with dystonia. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks, Becky. But I, I, I think one of the things is, um, you, you know, as you, you go through, every, everyone goes through life, and it, it's well, it's been especially hard lately with COVID and and all that sort of thing. Um, but I, th- I think nearly all you, you, everyone comes across a difficult moment in their life. If you get through life without, it's impossible to get through life without a, an issue, because yeah. you know people do get ill, people die, and, and you know you're going to be affected at some point, or or you get ill yourself, or you know, or something can. Ha- and it's how you re- how you react to that. I think is the key thing. And it's it's really hard. It's, it's trying to keep positive. And I think it's um, it's one thing being able to react to that yourself, but it's also another thing how you react amongst other people in those times, and how or how you support other people going through those times. I think it's yeah, it's one thing being an individual in those times, but also being part of a group is another another ball game. Yeah, yeah. And and being able to support people who who you might be, think are going through, you know, just being there for them. You you don't want to kind of um, sort of smother them with advice and things like that. But just say, just give me a call anytime, you know, that kind of thing. It's just nice to know. Um, and actually, Morris talking to Morris um, when I was having these problems at the LSO, um, Morris Murphy, he he was very caring guy. And he he talked to me. He had issues. Um, um, it, thankfully, he he got he came he got over it, you know, pretty quickly. But he he said, hey, "Bob, do you fancy going to Spain and playing some golf?" You know, and oh. I said, "Yeah, yeah." So I I went to Spain. Um, it was just actually it was just before Christmas, so it was, it was in December. We went to Spain as Morris. <laughs> Nigel Gom, again, he's not with us, and um, Richard Clues, a horn player. We, we went to Spain, and, and it was almost as if Morris thought, ah, oh, Bob, get, just get away from that trombone and play some golf for a few days, you know. Um, that, that was, and he didn't say that, but I, I think that was, he was very caring of him, you know. Um, I think because I almost expected that you were going to say, uh, why don't you come over or play some duets or something? But I, uh, yeah, completely agree that getting away from the instruments sometimes because, yeah, you know, playing in groups can be great. Um, but actually, often you just need someone to be like, come on, let's 
put these instruments away and let's go and do something yeah just completely not related to what we're doing work-wise or yeah yeah whatever's causing the issue yeah uh, um, i think that's very important that you know be, being supportive and you know just being there <laughs> mm. and yeah and as you say you don't need to fix the problem you often just need to give them the space to talk if they want to and if they don't want to talk then just yeah give them the space that's right i think that's very wise yeah 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 thanks becky no my pleasure yeah. um thank you so much and, and i suppose the other thing is that just just because i i don't didn't come through dystonia uh, you know i didn't get back to, it doesn't mean that people can't mm. but it, j just because i didn't make it doesn't mean other people can't you know uh, well no just in the same way that it's not going to be the same muscles for everybody it's never going to be the same uh outcome for everybody and yeah i expect that like any injury it's completely individual absolutely e everyone's slightly different you know um uh, yeah, you can't just prescribe one exercise or one medication for everybody. So yeah, yeah, because a lot of musicians, you know, if they, they if they hit problems, they keep quiet about it mm. because it's their livelihood, and you know they they're going to hope they get over it, but they don't want work to get out. Or oh, he's having problems, you know, you know, yeah, you, you know, say um. Someone's always oh, he's having problems with his high register, you know. So, oh. so you know, it's, the chances are. Um, so musicians don't talk about it as openly, I don't think. But it just makes it so much worse. And every person that doesn't talk about something just enables or disables somebody else from talking about their whatever they're going through. So, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. You, you know, if you if you if you're playing for a top football team, you you probably got the whole support network behind you, yeah. physios and probably you know men, people on the mental side. They've got the whole thing, and they've got loads of money if you're a, a yeah. Premiership football team. But that that's we don't have that backup. There are so financially there are some support places like the Royal Society of Musicians, and there's BAPAM, which is for medical. They can send you the right channels medically, mm. um, and they're they're really great uh, organisations, really. But I often think with my uh, with my own problems, could I have prevented it? And and I've got a few thoughts I, I won't bore you with now. That maybe I, maybe it was that, maybe it's that, maybe it's that. You know, but I, I'll never know because it's happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah anyway I, I, I won't bore you anymore <laughs> no it's all right i do have to go and teach clarinet soon oh so. will you go <laughs> <laughs> kind of wish i could just stay here <laughs> but no honestly it's been such a joy talking to you and i really hope that we can chat again someday in person maybe. yeah we'll come, come in and have a drink and have a that'd be great yeah i, th I th don't know if the bar's open at the end.